Hi, I'm Dan Sanguinetti, and this is Film Rhapsody. Welcome back to Film Rhapsody for the year 2020. Um, I'm your host, Dan Sanguinetti, and I'm sitting here with Russell Lee. Hello. Now, uh, we've been working pretty hard on a number of different things, uh, including production of Alice. Mm-hmm. Um, what that means is that we haven't quite got season two together yet. Every now and then we want to sleep, people. Yeah, so we had a little chat. A little, a little discussion on what we could possibly do to fill in the gap with, until we had season two ready to go. So we thought we'd do a bit of a throwback because we love doing throwbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, we thought we would do a clip show. Yep, we're stealing another page from Kevin Smith's book. And just like the Cloaks cartoon of 2000 whatever, we're doing a clip show way too early. Oh, well, I actually think we've got some great episodes from season one to look back at. And of course, as everyone knows... Clip shows are a tried and tested part of the entertainment industry. We all love them. A great way of saying we love you. Thank you for tuning in. Here's another episode. We couldn't actually be bothered making you one. I have to admit, I completely understand uh, the the reasoning behind producers deciding that we need to do a clip show episode. I mean, it's to do with resource. Um, and the fact is, is uh, the last few weeks, uh, last month and a half of 2020 has just been some of the busiest weeks of probably my life. Um, we had Alice that was shooting for our second block. Mm-hmm. Um, I've run a number of workshops, had a number of new clients come on board. It's been so busy here at Sanguinary Media. So the time to actually produce a new episode, I guess, you know, we had to come up with something. And so I guess this is where we're going to throw back to something that we are quite familiar with. Well, something you're familiar with, I mean, I tend to forget the cop shows, eh, except for the bad ones. We both remember Star Trek. Uh, yes, Star Trek. The one where Riker is uh, got some parasite in him and he's dying and he goes through a whole load of memories, which at, at the sound of it sounds like an innovative idea, but its execution sucked. Well, you have clip shows like Stargate after one season. You have Star Trek The Next Generation after two. You have Happy Days after 42 seasons. Some shows just don't have enough good stuff to show. The good thing is, is I think we've got plenty of great stuff. Uh, we've collated some of our best highlights uh, of season one. And yeah, we're going to talk it through with you. And hopefully you'll uh, enjoy them as much as we have. And you're looking forward to joining us for the rest of season two. So to kick things off, we start with our first clip, which comes from the first episode where I sat down with my buddy, Declan Shrub. Thanks for having me, Dan, on the first episode. It's a great honor. I love podcasts and I love you. Thanks, Nick. We, um, we've got a long history, I guess you could say. You're going to talk about the time we kissed in Amsterdam, aren't you? You've already brought it up. I didn't want to go there, but we're already there. It was a mistake and I loved it. We started producing a feature film together, I think, as a result of a fairly, fairly coherent pitch that you made um, to me in Gus's yeah and then that resulted in us getting some like we yeah. won some competition it didn't feel like we won but yeah. there was some competition and that resulted in us I think that was in 2012 as well I think yeah. that was like later 2012 and end of the year yeah because I took part in 
the screen ACT's accelerator. No, it wasn't accelerator pod. It was called the low budget feature pod. Yeah. And at the end of the first few weeks of it, we had to pitch a film and I'd written this zombie film and I went to you because you'd made Theatre of the Dead and I said, oh, Dan knows how to produce a zombie film. He's the only person I know. And part of the requirement was that I attach a producer um, to be able to get into the next round. So I probably just sent you a message and said, hey, I've got an idea. Can you hear it? And I, I actually, I probably would have just said, can you come on as a producer just lend me your name. Tell, just say for this piece of paper that you're going to be the producer because I wouldn't have thought there was any chance of getting through. I'm just like, I need your name. And you said, you actually have to come and sit down and pitch me the idea. Oh, yeah, because I'm a hard ass and I, I make people work. We somehow found ourselves in a position where we had to make a million-dollar film and yeah. we didn't have a million dollars to do it. And that wasn't the plan either. The, the low-budget feature pod was meant to be a $300,000 film or something like yeah. that. That the, the idea was to do a Blair Witchy kind of story that you could make really cheap. Um, and that was what we always planned to do. So I designed this story about these telecom tradies in one location and it's, and the zombies outside. And instead of fighting the zombies and doing all this cool action, they just sit around drinking beer and hope that the zombies don't get inside basically. On the Halloween special, we take a look at Dan's questionable taste in horror movies. So no, my number two, um, I, I don't know, I, I reckon I'm going to get some groans over this one. <laughs> um, but I think like the, the series for me is um, just so influential in story, my storytelling, in, in my horror interest in slasher movies. It's and like I guess human centipede, is it? Uh, no, no. And no. no. <laughs> it is Scream 2. Ah, nudes. Um, you hipster, you. Well, you see, I'm. Uh, well, I believe you were a child of the eighties. Mm -hmm. I am a child of the nineties. Oh, you poor sucker! And <laughs> Scream was quite influential. It came out like it was. I was a bit too young to see the first one when it came out. I actually, I actually remember seeing the first one. I, I saw it at, um, at the Electric Shadows Theater in Canberra. Yeah, and I think I, th I, I, I knew nothing about it. Yeah. Absolutely nothing about it. I didn't know that Wes Craven did it. All I saw was the poster with Drew Barrymore. And I was like, oh, I like Drew Barrymore. Yeah. Had no idea about it. So I went into it completely cold. Yeah. Loved it. I, I, I do like the Scream films. I will, give, I will give them shit. Yeah. But mostly because of all the copycats and clones that came out after well, it. True. Um, yeah. It, it started it, it, a genre of its own. Yeah. Right? It set the mold for, for yeah. slasher movies, basically. Um, but that's what I liked it. In a way, I mean, why Scream 2 was, I think really good for me as a influencing film was is is it dealt much more deeply into what horror films can do and sequels mm -hmm. um i guess i guess as a, like my nightmare three yeah and and in a way that um you know a young person interested in media um i was just on the edge of really my interest in film really taking off when i finally saw scream 2 which would have not been in 97 when it came out um, um 97 or 98. Yeah, but it, it would have been like 99, 2000 is when I saw it. And that's when I was like being a filmmaker. So the whole idea of, you know, these characters sitting in a room talking about movies and saying, what's the best film, you know, film sequel when they're in a sequel. That there are rules to surviving a horror film. Exactly. And, and, and it, I guess it just helped, um, you know, form a, 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 a opinion on, on how films 
exist and why they exist. And, and I guess there was a lot of like seeing these characters that, um, you know, I, I, I enjoyed watching in the first one mm-hmm. um, to see them sort of progressing and growing and kind of trying to pick the whodunit side of it as well, which to be honest, I mean, my interest in, in crime shows and things is always like trying to like work out who did the murder and stuff. And I think that's why that film works well, the series works so well because it's not just the slasher stuff. I guess I've got a pretty funny Scream 2 story. Yep. I, I dragged my poor mother to see Scream 2. And it was a back cinema. We were surrounded by girls who screamed at every goddamn thing. Mm. But the funny PS was when they revealed, and this is a bit of a spoiler for people who haven't seen it, so hold on tight for a 20-year spoiler. When they revealed the, the first of the killers and Timothy Oliphant took the mask off, I had no idea who he was. I completely forgot his character in the movie. And he's in the movie a fair amount of time. He's a, a friend of Randy's. He has a, a scene with um, Sydney at the hospital. He isn't an invisible character by any stretch of the imagination. Just completely forgot who he was. So when the mask came off, I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> and she, I remember um, Nev Campbell's character, Sydney, was like, um, Stu? And I'm like... Is that the boyfriend from part one? Didn't he die? Yeah. Is it the same actor? Yeah. And I had no cell phone, so I couldn't whip out IMDb and be like, no, that's not Johnny Depp's clone. Yeah. So I had absolutely no idea who it was. And it's kind of a weird thing. I don't, I don't know if it's the fault of the storytelling, the actor, me being a space cadet, but just the character left absolutely no impression on me. Yeah. Uh, funny you say a story because the symmetry I have is when watching Scream 3, when, spoiler, the killer is revealed to be Sydney's brother, I was like, what? Yeah. Where, where did that come from? And, I mean, it took me a couple of viewings for me to get, oh, he's the director of the Scream 3 movies that their whole film... The fact that when he took the mask off and he was like, Roman Bridges, yeah. director, you went like... Who? I don't know who this guy is. Yeah. It was so very similar. Like, he just did not stand out as a villain. So his reveal was... Just that's, that's kind of the problem with the screen films beyond the first one. Yeah, the first one did it so well with the um, with the boyfriend. Like it was like, nah, it can't be the boyfriend, and, and it's and like, the, the cool it is the boyfriend. So our next clip comes from the episode where Russell decided he wanted to experiment with uh, what would you call it? Uh, radio prank calling. Hilarity. Uh, so you, well, do we need to describe what you did, or we just let the listeners? I entertained the masses. Well, have we done any more prank calls since? Um, play the clip. We'll play the clip. <laughs> okay. It's ringing. Whoa. Michael, it's Russell from Canberra. How you doing? How you going, buddy? Not too bad. Uh, Dan's here as well. Say hi, Dan. Hello. <laughs> hey, Dan. So what are you doing tonight? Uh, Boring. Hang up. <laughs> I'm glad you did that. I'm gonna call him back. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. How did you enjoy being part of our first podcast prank call? It was fantastic. Oh, yeah. Damn. Yeah. Up again. No, I'm not going to hang up again. I've actually taken the phone away from Russell. Yeah. Over the last couple of years, I've had this wonderful experience of working with a young man named Carl Emerson. 
He is a talented, insightful, inspiring young man. And his passion for film has given me a new sense of direction in regards to my own career. He is also a long-time radio host. So when we got him into the podcast studio, um, he was able to teach me a thing or two. So the result of that film, um, you won Best Screenplay at Focus on a Billy, which, yeah, which I think is an incredible achievement and one that I'm really proud. It that was it was achieved. a huge it was a huge sort of thing because I had I had no idea they only chose the category at all only if, what a, a week or so in advance and the script wasn't really the script wasn't the key part of the story yeah. that was some um, that that was really just you know the finished film more than anything the script was one part but uh, suddenly. Mm. suddenly here we are um and because of that we're on to our new film two graves yeah that's right um and 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 i mean winning that award was a bit surreal you weren't even sure if you actually won it i didn't i didn't know like i again usually nominees are told of this stuff beforehand i just sort of rocked up to sydney because i thought you know what we put the film into this what the hell let's Mm. just uh sit down and watch some of the other things yeah i had no idea any of that no no i mean it was a it was a quite a surprise Really nice surprise. And then they played us on TV in, uh, what, February? Yeah, that's right. I think it was on Foxtel. Which I don't have, so I had to go all the way to uh, Bruce, to an eccentric cat lady's house. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that was fun times all around. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as a result uh, so of the award, it came from the Australia's Writers Guild who were involved in the judging of the, f- the film. Oh, so it's not proper screenwriters and things. Yeah, then. yeah. And so... Um, and that's how Jamie Brown, um, AACT nominated writer, um, got involved in uh, the project. So he gave you a mentorship over a couple of months to help develop a new film, a new short film, which we've talked about before, Two Graves. Um, but this is, I guess, I think this is the first time on this podcast that we're talking about it. Or really since we entered production. We did a Kickstarter for it and that yeah, which was, was pretty successful. Yeah, successful, like $6,000. Yeah, and we've got we've had other other things moving forward on it and... There's a few more applications that were put forward, hopefully, to get it moving forward. We don't know. We'll see what, what happens there. But um, let's talk about the writing process. So what was it like being mentored by Jamie Brown, being that he is, uh, you know, AACT nominated, he works on a numerous uh, TV shows, he's done some big movies. Well, what was it like? Well, as you can guess from what you just said, he was pretty busy. So most of it was we would here at the office go and work on bits of the script we'd send him every revision each week or so and then every few weeks we'd have a proper conversation check in here's what something why this works why this could work better what's another sort of what's another avenue that this line of the story could take with some greater payoffs things like that but definitely the mentor part the mentor part was more of like I think a spirit Obi Wan Kenobi sort of thing, yeah, yeah. and th- which was really possibly the most helpful part of it that I was able to really evolve all this stuff on the ground. One of the cool things about last season was sitting down with a whole variety of people from the film industry and picking their brains. We had a chance to sit down with Marissa Martin, an award-winning animator from Canberra. Dan spoke with his longtime friend Hugh Sanderson, an award-winning writer-director from Canberra, and I spoke with my mentor Carol Siggers long-time story guru with decades of experience. In the next few clips, you'll hear from Marissa, Hugh and Carol as they share a little bit about their screen crafting journeys. First, straight off the bat, to tell a good story, begin with character. Yep. Always. Uh, it's good to have plot and themes being around your head. You kind of want to know what 
it's going to look like and have a sense of that. And yeah. I say all this knowing full well, and, I, and the reason I brought this up before is all of my films started from wanting to see something on screen and maybe having a bit of an idea of a theme. Yeah. But what I learned to do, and I didn't do this for the first few films, and I, and I think Turn Back was the first one where I really actually stopped and did this, but I think it's important to have a good sense of your plot and your theme, but then you've got to park them, you've got to put them in a drawer, and you have got to really figure out your character. Yeah. first and foremost, without them being beholden to plot or theme. Um, you want to find a journey where a flawed character born out of some existential fear that they've got goes on a journey and learns to either abandon that flaw or they tragically fail to abandon that flaw. Yeah. That is basically the essence of all storytelling on stage, on film, on television. Just yeah. You've got to start there. Once you know your character, and this is the brilliant thing about like when you start just focusing on character you'll realize that your plot will just so easily fall into place because it will make perfect sense for the journey that they need to go on. And then the true theme about your film will reveal itself. Yeah. Character will crystallize everything else for you. Yeah. Now, that's to tell a good story. To make a good film, which I think is the next layer on top of this, dynamics are essential. Dynamics are kind of this idea is that you're going on this up and down and up and down or some kind of arc, right? And that's why I think... Uh, like character change is just so inherent in film. Yeah. You have a roller coaster that you're putting your audience on. You're setting them on a journey, they reach a midpoint, they go into crisis, they come out again, and it's a really intense ride. Yeah. Audiences love that stuff. Yeah. Um, now, what having good dynamics in a film means, it also means having an end game. Um, that means we can compare the start and the middle of the film with the end of the film, and we can see different emotional points there. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important is to have your film resolve in some way. Um, dynamics also exist scene by scene and beat by beat. Audiences really love investing in character. Um, they love piecing together story themselves. Don't overserve them with information or exposition. Like trust that they're smart and that they want to figure things out. Yeah. Um, but audiences also love being surprised. They like thinking they have things figured out, but then get surprised as well. And you can't do that with a story that's a straight line. Yeah. You need dynamics. Um, give What you really want to do in your film is constantly give them cliffhangers, beat by beat, scene by scene, and act by act, uh, act by act, where, that are tied to the character. It's not, will the bomb go off? That's not the cliffhanger. We're talking about like, this character has just learned new information. Oh my God, what are they going to do next? Yeah. And beat by beat, this happens. It doesn't have to be a big obvious moment, but it's just little switches of power of the character being empowered and having that flipped on their heads as the situation changes. If you can really get dynamics into your film, you're going to create something that's going to engage the audience. Yeah, uh, the thing is animation is so different in a lot of ways because it's so time intensive and everything yeah. is slower. Um, I mean, I did make... Um, I've made a few things while I've been making this film. So I made, um, I've made video clips and I've made um, other short films that have done okay and such, but nothing with the sort of, you know, intention that Della Mort had. Yeah. So Della Mortico um, is a steampunk film. So that, you know, you can imagine what that means in terms of production design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge amounts of design. And um, I think when we first started started on it and we took it to Project Pod, Cam Screen Canberra's Project Pod, um, this was eight years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we started developing it into a much larger project. Um, I s we really developed the characters to a point where, you know, mum and I were like, because my mother worked on it with yeah. me, we're like, we love these girls so much, we're ready to spend the next decade with them. 
Um, and it would have been nice to do more with them than just the one film, but the money ran out. (laughs) So, um, we, you know, we did all the bulk of the original filming and all of the, all of the, um, acting, all of the voice recording, all of that early on. And then we spent the next sort of year or so, um, making it, but then, you know, the arts grant ran out. So it was a matter of, I need to work now and then I'll get back to it, work, get back to it, work, get back to it. Um, when I made Tegan, I was fortunate enough that, um, I was able to work three, three days a week, um, every week for six months. And then we shot it in that time. So I had two days a week of paid work that was enough to keep me, you know, pay my bills. Um, and then I could spend three full days a week, um, shooting, and then I would spend almost every evening doing post on it yeah. um, or building the next set or, you know, making tiny props and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, whereas this film, um, you know, I had family commitments and life gets in the way and all those sorts of things, which meant that I couldn't work on it as intensely as I worked on Tegan. Um, and I had to spread it out. But every time I looked at it again, I would go, it's so beautiful. Yeah. And that's what kept me going. I guess one thing I, I want to f- find out is like, I, I, I feel like I've always been a writer. It just took me as long as it took to get where I am now. I guess the question would be, can writing be learned or is it something you need to be born with? Yeah, that's a, that's a question always, I mean, often comes back. I think everybody is a writer to some degree. Some people have to work harder than others. Um and I think you you, you kind of know whether you're a writer or not. Mm. I think if you have that unquenchable desire to to get a story out, I guess then you're a writer. That nagging little voice in the yeah, back of your head. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But not everybody has, you know, this is born with the skills. And I think that there are skills that you can learn. I'm absolutely sure of that. And if you listen to some of the greatest contemporary screenwriters, they will admit that. You know, if you listen to an Aaron Sorkin, he learned what he knows from listening to plays. He, oh. he listened to more than a thousand plays. And it's just, you know, it's, it's osmosis. I mean, you, you're familiar with the, that uh, screenwriting course I've got online. It's called Immersion. It works by osmosis. I really believe that the, the core skills you need to, to execute the script on the page, you can learn. Yeah. Uh, so if you have, if you feel the inspiration, the desire, that's one thing, but you still need to learn the skills. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's going to be a very, very long journey of rewrites. I think. In sitting down with our collaborator Masood on our Man in the Moon short film, Dan and I received a listen in optimistic sci-fi and why it means so much to him. Tell us a bit about like what is optimistic sci-fi. Sure. So I I didn't actually come up with the term optimistic. It was mm. Gene Roddenberry. Yep. Uh, who actually coined the term. Uh, so he set out Star Trek to be an inspiring um, world future yeah. where we've um, uh, eliminated poverty, uh, wars, um, and, and we're exploring the galaxy as you know one human family. Uh, so that appealed to me as a child. Yeah. Um, so just to give you a little bit of a history of where I come from and why Star Trek... Uh, appeal to me and that's that's basically the foundation of what I like about optimistic science fiction um, so we have been uh, persecuted in Iran so we're Baha'is uh, so we've lived through two civil wars and as a child I initially watched TV to escape that world right? that um, 
um, I guess, that difficult, you know, for a child, it's a lot to handle. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we had close family and we looked after each other, um, you're still exposed to that, you know, the, the, dark, the dark side of life and things like that. So um, shows like Star Trek and, uh, well, at the time, it was $6 million, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that kind of gave me an escape uh, into a world where, yeah, there's still a bit of action and adventure, but at the end of it, you know, um, people are helping each other, people are being compassionate and uh, helping each other. You know, that, mm-hmm. that was the core thing that um, uh, that attracted me to those type of shows. And then as an adult, when I um, kept watching Star Trek, there was something substantially uh, very uh, profound in the core philosophy of it is that we are always advancing. We are always uh, becoming better. So when Star Trek came along, there was this notion of uh, anti-hero. So mm. you had to be a bad guy to be a good guy. Mm. Um, I don't think I don't believe that. I think everybody is good. We just do bad. Yeah. <laughs> so this notion of the simplistic notion of good and bad, um, I think, is a very outdated one. Mm. Um, uh, that's why some of the um, shows these days are much more complex. And I think, and I think Star Trek was way ahead of its time to tackle social issues in a way that wasn't confronting at the time to the you know the powers that be. Yet it provided that so so it basically touched people's hearts in some ways, mm-hmm. um, and that continued with the Next Generation and other shows like Babylon Five and. Lately now, there's the Orville that came along, so it's a similar concept. And things yeah. like that. Sit back and enjoy this clip from the Christmas episode where I have an existential crisis about frog and pig breeding while Dan speaks about one of his favourite Christmas movies. Coming soon on Video Cassette, Walt Disney Pictures presents a Jim Henson production of a classic Christmas tale. Bah, humbug. He's the world's greediest man. It's Ebenezer Scrooge. Until the magical night he meets someone extraordinary. The Muppet Christmas Carol. Wait a minute, 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 wait a minute. Yeah. Are you saying that Kermit the Frog is on cocaine? Oh my god, is this why he's having a fair with a pig? Oh my god, it makes so much sense. Yeah, I think think Russell's just worked out the Muppets. At least at least where the Muppets came from in the first place. The Muppet Christmas Carol is my number three film in this countdown. Christmas is not complete without the voice of Kermit the Frog. And even better when you've got Michael Bloody Kane being a Scrooge. How the hell did a pig give birth to frogs? The Muppet Christmas Carol, the songs that make up that film, bring so much joy to me. And this is not this film is not a uh, childhood memory thing. All right. I saw this movie when I was younger. Sure. It wasn't until I was a grown adult that I really truly appreciated what the Muppets does, what the Muppets do to I guess my 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 mood, my my Christmas spirit. Oh my god. Did someone eat like Robin's leg off? Is that why he's playing Tiny Tim? Oh my god. Oh god. I wish I never got Disney Plus in the first place. Oh my god. It's horrible. What I think the standout characters are in this is uh Gonzo and Rizzo. Um, they, they don't have major parts, but they seem to come along for the journey in characters. I think they even self-acknowledge that don't exist in the Christmas Carol story, which 
um, I think gets the first big laugh for me out of it. But, you know, for what the Muppets do in general, like beyond the Christmas um, realm of, the, of particularly this list, the Muppets are something that I go to when I am feeling awful. You know, when I'm really struggling with, with life and things and the struggles that come with, with you know, running a business, you know, f- fighting to, to, you know, make it a living, to, to try and live towards my dreams. Um, I find that when I go to the Muppets, it gives me a sense of peace. And, and that's what the Muppets Christmas movie does for me at Christmas. When I put this on, and, and I will be putting this on in the lead up to Christmas. I, out, of, out of my five movies, this will be the first one that I will play to get me into the Christmas spirit as soon as we close up office at Sanguine Media. In our final clip, we go back to episode two, where Russell and I talked about our growing professional relationship. Back then, it had been about six months from when we had completed the Man in the Moon short film, and we were quite heavy into pre-production on Alice. So and the Man in the Moon became, I think, a really great collaboration between mm-hmm. us as, as not just a uh, producer, writer, writer, director. Like, it, it, I mean, it was a way for us to understand how we work. And yeah. I mean... One of the things that, uh, you know, without being too too gushing and, you know, offering compliments to you, I mean, what I enjoyed, uh, what I enjoyed about the process was that I had a particular vision as director, mm-hmm. and you had a particular vision as writer, and I said my vision is in this direction, your vision was in the other direction, and yet you listened, you understood that there was a. a an end game that we're reaching for mm-hmm. and you were more than willing to work through the same themes and concepts, but move it towards the direction that we were hoping for. And that, and that's what the script was. And, and I think also from, from my point of view is that it was never a question of this is my idea, Russell, this is how we're going to do it. It was a collaboration. It yeah. was okay. Here's why I think we should change this. And you listen to my response and we found a, a way that, it worked well for both of us. Yeah, and it came out very grand. Very proud of the movie. Yeah, no, I'm. I'm. It's one of my favorite movies as as a director that I've had because the vision was clear. The vision was so clear to me. It was on the page in the script, mm-hmm. and to to be able to and you know and as a filmmaker that you know over my journey I've spent so much time producing my own work. I've 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 written my own scripts and then I've directed them. Mm-hmm. And when the, the the big steps I've just learned as a as a filmmaker is and, and where I have grown in my career is actually taking other people's work and producing it to the I guess um, criteria or to the brief that they expect. Um, is that a strange step to the, to go from writing your own stuff and directing your own stuff to directing someone else's? Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 definitely something that is new and different. And I mean, and that, that's where the next step is as well, is as a producer who has produced other people's work mm-hmm. um, and then worked with the director, not necessarily always being the writer, but most mostly being the writer. Most of them are, yeah. But now I am producing, right, your script, yep. Alice, and then I'm directing it. And that's a whole new world for me. You know, yeah, I don't have many feature... Uh, producer credits but 
enough to get the feeling of this is the process and way to bring a film together. Here's mm-hmm. the, here's all the necessary elements and yep. um, here's the different things we need to make a film work. Now as director, I've, I've actually experiencing something I've never experienced before where I'm, I'm, I'm now got this producer side of me working with a writer that is not my material. So it has your own vision, have your own way of wanting it to appear. Mm-hmm. And then me as a director, having my own view and my own idea of how it's going to appear and it all sitting there. And then there's the other producers in their point of view. And, and so it's just like, there's so many different things that are coming together and, and it's, and it's this new, just totally new film experience that I haven't had before. Does it make it easier being the director to sort of be like, I have the final say? No. And that's because I've always had the final say as producer. And in the past, I've been... The, now you have three more producers. I've got three more you. producers working. But also as producer, you you know, you've got to also compromise with your creatives. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just a whole new experience for me at this stage. And we're still quite, like, we're very close to moving pre-production. So that was our clip show. How do you think that went? Fantastic. I think we should do another one for season two? You bet. All right. Season two is coming soon. Make sure you subscribe in your podcast player so you can make sure you get our latest episodes right to your device. You can also support this podcast by becoming a patron for just $1 a month. Find us at patreon.com forward slash sanguinity media. So until next time, I'm Dan Sanguinetti. I'm Russell Lee. And this has been Film Rhapsody. Film Rhapsody is produced by Russell Lee and Dan Sanguinetti for Sanguinetti Media. Find our home at sanguinatymedia.com.au. Let's record that again.